0: Thursday night, we had a time of corporate prayer in two different locations. It was a blessing to pray together. We made a lot of requests to God then and over the course of this last week. I'm sure you have prayed for many things. Do you want God to answer every prayer you make? Think back. Recall over years, or if you've been praying for decades, over decades, some of the prayers you have offered. Do you always wish God had said yes to exactly what you prayed for? In August of 1977, my girlfriend of the previous two years broke up with me. I was not walking with God at the time. But the pain of that breakup drove me to prayer, fervent prayer. And I prayed that God would restore that relationship. He did not. And one month later, I started dating this woman sitting over there. And we've now been married for 43 years and have six children and nine grandchildren. And I'm so glad God said no to that prayer. God didn't give me what I asked for. He gave me something better. Does God always work that way? Is every no, yes, to something better? Consider an incident in the life of the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 12, he speaks of a thorn in the flesh. He says it comes from Satan. Satan was tormenting him. Paul pleaded three times with God to take it away, and he did not. Instead, God said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul sees that this is a better answer to his request. It keeps him from being conceited given the greatness of the revelations he has seen as he just recorded earlier in 2 Corinthians. And also he says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul continued to have that thorn. There was real pain involved. But Paul would say, God gave me something better then I request it. Well, these two stories illustrate a truth, a truth that we just read from Ephesians 3. God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. According to his power that is at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. As he gives us more than we ask, more than we can even think through the power which is at work within us, the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in his people, he glorifies his entire church, he glorifies Jesus, He does it now, and 25 years from now, and 100 years from now, forever and ever. He is able to do more than we ask, more than we imagine. And so Jesus tells us in John 14, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. What does that mean? It doesn't mean I pray, oh Lord, give me a Mercedes Benz in Jesus' name. Now I'm going to get it. Right? That's not what it means. It means whatever you ask that is truly for the glory of His name, which is truly for the good of His people, including you, this God. Will do. And whatever you ask that is not the best for you, the best for the church, the best for the glory of Jesus, God says, I will do something different. I will do something better, something beyond what you ask, something beyond what you even imagine. That answer may involve pain. Weeks long pain, as in my case in nineteen seventy seven, years long pain in the Apostle Paul's life with his thorn in the flesh. But Paul tells us in Second Corinthians four seventeen that momentary light affliction it may not seem light at the time. That momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. His answer is better for us, better for the church, better for the glory of Jesus. Think of another request in Scripture the request that the prophet Habakkuk makes at the beginning of his book. He says, This society is a mess, God. Justice is not done. I'm tired of looking at injustice. Will you do something? And God says, I'm going to do something so far beyond what you imagine. You won't believe it when I tell you. And then he says, you've heard about those terrible people, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. I'm going to bring them and they're going to destroy your country. That was better than what Habakkuk asked for. But oh, was it painful. You can read how painful it was in Lamentations. But it was part of God's perfect plan. Better for his people, ultimately better for his glory. Better to bring about the coming of Jesus and the reconciliation of his people with God. Well, for several months, we've been working our way through the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 to 134. These were written at different times, some from the time of David on down through the return of the Israelites from exile. So they're written over a period of almost 500 years. but they're compiled, they're put together in this order intentionally after the exile, after the building of the second temple. Many believe that these were sung as pilgrims would approach Jerusalem, approach Zion for the annual feast that took place. We've seen that these psalms are frequently grouped in threes, 120 to 122, 123 to 125, etc. With the first of the triad being a cry of despair, of distress. The second being a statement of security in God. And the third broadening that out from the individual's security in God to the people of God, Zion, rejoicing in Him these last three, Psalms 132, 133, 134, the end, the culmination of the Songs of Ascent, all focus on Zion. In in essence, they are all three, the third of a sequence here, the last three of the 15 Songs of Ascent. Though 132 has no label as to an author, It could be by Solomon. It seems appropriate for the time of Solomon, a son of David, a descendant of David, speaking about David. And it seems particularly appropriate for what happened in Solomon's reign after Solomon had built the temple and then the ark is brought into the temple for the first time as recorded in 2 Chronicles 5 and 6. And so we'll begin today by seeing how this psalm links to God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, which we read. You know, David thought he was going to build a temple for God. He thought, I'm going to do something great for God. It's not appropriate for me to be living in a house that I have built, a glorious house that I have built, a palace. Well, God's ark is in a tent But God said, no. God said, I have a better plan. I'm going to answer your request in a better way. And I'm going to do, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. So we'll look at that. And then we'll look at four prayers that are made in Psalm 132, four requests to God and see how in each case, God answers by promising to do more than the request. And then finally, we'll ask, is that how God always works? Can we really expect God to answer every prayer, giving us either what we ask or something better? So, first heading, David's idea. 2 Samuel 7 tells us that after God had given David rest from all his enemies and he had built his palace. He then desired to build this house for God. The ark was a picture of the very presence of God and it had been made back in Exodus. So this is 400 some years before David Psalm 132, verses 2 to 5, tell us more than what we know from 2 Samuel 7. David swore, I will not rest until I find a place for the Lord, the ark picturing the presence of the Lord. So God had given him rest, but he says, I won't take that rest. Not yet. There's more I have to do. But then as 2 Samuel tells us, God speaks through the prophet Nathan. Would you build a house for me to dwell in? The Lord will make you a house. Your offspring will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So as we have been studying the overall story of the Bible in our core seminar. This promise to David is the third Old Testament promise we highlight, connecting the Old Testament and the New Testament. This promise to David, elaborated on by later prophets, says that a descendant of David will reign forever over a kingdom of righteousness and Peace fulfilled, of course, in Jesus, as we read in those selections in our call to worship. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. So David wants to build a physical house for God for the Ark, and God says, "No, you're not the one to build." my house. I'm going to build up your house eternally. Your descendant will reign forever. Now, in 2 Samuel 7, it's not completely clear, was David's desire good, right? Well, Psalm 132 makes it clear that was a good desire for David to have, and it is his son Solomon who then fulfills that desire. And then as recorded in 2 Chronicles 5 and 6, Solomon brings the ark up to the new temple. Verse 6 of Psalm 132 looks back at an earlier time when the Philistines, you may recall, had captured the ark and God sent a plague among them. They eventually returned the ark but after they returned the ark, 1 Samuel 7 tells us it spent decades in a small place, Kiriath-Jarim, which is referred to in verse 6 of Psalm 132 by an abbreviated name, Jar. Okay? So verse 6 of Psalm 132, Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, we found it in the fields of Jar. In essence, the people are saying, This has been a long, the people in Solomon's day, when the ark is being brought into the new temple, they're saying, this has been a long journey for the ark. A long journey to the place it should be. We heard about the ark while we were in Ephrathah near Bethlehem. And now the ark was in the fields of Ja'ar. Now we're bringing it up to where it really should be right in the middle in the Holy of Holies in this new temple dedicated to God. And so in verse 7 of Psalm 132, the people expressed their desire to worship God rightly in the permanent dwelling place of his presence, the ark. Verse 7, let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. And then in verse 8, they asked that the Ark might make that final journey. This is the only reference to the Ark in the book of Psalms. Arise, O Lord, go to your resting place, you and the Ark of your might. That happens. The Ark is brought into the temple. As Second Chronicles 6 and 7 record, there's then this huge worship celebration that Solomon leads. And then God acts miraculously at the end of that, at the dedicate, as, as it happened at the dedication of the tabernacle in Exodus 40. They have all these offerings, and fire comes down from heaven and consumes the offering, and the glory of the Lord fills the temple to the extent that the priests are not even able to enter the temple. Exactly what happened in Exodus chapter 40. So worship of Yahweh will then continue in this temple built by Solomon for 400 years. 400 years. Okay, think back 400 years ago. What was that? That was when the pilgrims came on the Mayflower, right, to Massachusetts. That's how long worship continued in Solomon's temple. So now let's step back from that specific setting of the psalm. That's what happens. They're delighting in the movement of the ark into the new temple, beginning of this temple worship for centuries. Now let's look at the prayers and answers in this psalm. Four requests, and in in all four cases, God provides a better answer than what the people ask for. First request, this is the longest one. Verse one, remember, O Lord, in David's favor, his hardships, all the hardships he endured. And then David makes his oath not to rest, verses two to five. Verse 10 then details how the psalmist wants God to remember David. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. That's a little confusing to us. NET renders that, do not reject your chosen king. NIV and CSB are similar. I think that's the idea. For the sake of your servant, David, don't reject his descendant who's now reigning on the throne. But how does God answer that? Verses 11 and 12. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Okay, how does God answer? Well, the initial answer is your son will reign. That's fulfilled in Solomon, right? It says, I will teach them and your sons will continue to reign if they keep my covenant. That happened. And for centuries after this psalm is written, as we've said, descendants of David will stay on the throne. But... Many of those descendants of David did not keep the covenant. By the time that the Songs of Ascent are compiled, 500 years after David, we've seen the destruction of Solomon's temple. We've seen the exile, the return. But they return but do not have an independent nation. They're under the authority of other empires. There's no descendant of David on the throne. The second temple is built but there's no ark in it. The ark has been lost in the time of the exile. So God answered the prayer. He patiently endured unfaithful kings, but by the time of the compilation of the Psalms of Ascent, that's all in the past. Is the promise ended? Did the people blow it? Did the kings blow it? Well, in verses 17 and 18, God goes beyond his initial answer. And he gives these words that must have been of great comfort to the Jews living in the time of the second temple. He says this, There, Zion, I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. Remember, anointed is the word translated Christ, transliterated Christ in the New Testament. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed, my Christ. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. So you see what God is saying here. The way that these Jews who've returned from exile, who have rebuilt the temple, the way they would hear it, saying the king is coming i will bring it about he will be light the light of the world indeed he will overcome all evil all opposition so here is that third key promise in the old testament which jesus fulfills in revelation 11 right and god will go even further as the rest of scripture shows. Not only will he fulfill that promise to David through Jesus reigning forever and ever, he's gonna fulfill the first great promise to Eve in the garden that her descendant will crush the head of the serpent, Satan. He's gonna fulfill the second great promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that all the families of the nations will be blessed through his descendant, Jesus And he's going to fulfill that fourth great promise through Isaiah that a suffering servant will come and die for the sins of the people. And all of those are fulfilled in Jesus. So God goes far beyond the request. Not only does he look with favor on Solomon, David's first descendant, Not only does he ensure that a descendant of David will reign forever and ever, even though David's descendants rebel and are unfaithful to the covenant, he provides a mechanism for forgiveness and reconciliation, not only for the physical descendants of David, for the physical descendants of Abraham, but for all nations to become included in the children of Abraham, God's people. So God establishes the kingdom of our Lord and of his anointed one forever and ever. And that very anointed one, Jesus, is lion and lamb, almighty monarch, and suffering servant. Well, that's the first request and the first answer that goes way beyond the request. The other request we can consider more briefly. The second request, verse 8, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. As I said, and as Will has pointed out in his sermons on Exodus, the tabernacle, the temple, always picture God dwelling in the midst of his people. And so this is a request much like Moses' request in Exodus 33 that Will has preached on, right? Unless you go with us, <laughs> we don't, we don't want to go. How will anyone know that we're a distinct people unless your presence is with us? Well, God's answer to this request is in verses 13 and 14. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Again, Put yourself in the position of these returned exiles who don't have their independent nation. There's no son of David, descendant of David, reigning over them. Consider how powerful this statement is to them. My people will always be my people. I will never leave them nor forsake them. This is my desire. Notice how that desire is repeated here. This is my desire, and whatever pleases me, I do. So, beyond the request for the ark to go into the temple once, God says, I'm going to dwell there forever. And even to these people who have now lost the ark, God is saying, It's my desire. To dwell in the midst of my people, that's never going to change. That's never going to change. And so he dwells forever in his temple. And today, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And for all eternity, we will dwell in the new Jerusalem where there is no temple, for as Revelation 21 tells us, it's temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There's the reality of dwelling with God, with Jesus, that the temple only pictured. That's coming in New Jerusalem. So the second request, go to your resting place, the ark of your might, even when there's no more ark, God still answers that request. And he answers it finally, fully, in the new heavens and new earth. Much better than the request. Third request, verse 9, beginning of verse 9. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Answer, first part of verse 16, Her priests I will clothe with salvation. Here God gives a direct answer. He's not only going to give righteousness that they will be holy, right, accepted before him. But he's also going to give them salvation, deliverance, rescue. You see, one can be righteous and still be under oppression as those people in the post-exilic period were. So to promise salvation implies not only salvation from the penalty of sin, that would be encompassed in righteousness, but also salvation includes deliverance from every impact of evil on your life. And so that ultimately is fulfilled, as again we can read from Revelation 21, when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Salvation from every form of evil and oppression. That's God's answer. More than righteousness, salvation. The fourth, the last, is an interesting one, because when you read it in the ESV, you don't see any difference between the request and the response, but there is a difference. Second half of verse 9, let her saints shout for joy. Second half of verse 16, and her saints will shout for joy. So it seems like there's a request, and God says, yes, I'm going to grant that request. But read it in the NIV. May your faithful people sing for joy. And then in verse 16, her faithful people will ever... Sing for joy. So did the NIV translators just decide to add that? The Hebrew is indeed different in the two cases. In verse 16, the verb is repeated. Literally, we could render that, shouting for joy, her saints will shout for joy, which you wouldn't want to say in English because that just sounds silly, right? But this is a a common literary device to intensify the action. It can mean, surely this will happen, right? Surely the people will shout for joy. Or as the NIV interprets it, forever. It's going to go on forever and ever and ever. That's what the intensifying mean. Or it could mean that the joy itself is intensified. With supreme joy, this will happen, But however we render it, however we try to translate that into English, God responds to the request with more than what the people ask for. There's an intensifying of it. So we've seen four requests and four better answers. So we want to conclude then with the general question can we really expect God to answer every prayer either by giving us just what we ask or by giving us something even better? Particularly right now among us, thinking of the prayers we just offered corporately on Thursday evening, should we expect God to answer every one of those prayers just as we ask or to answer them even better? than what we ask for? The answer is, yes, we should. We should expect that. Example, Solomon, 2 Chronicles 1, verses 7 to 12, beginning of his reign. What does he ask God for? He asks God for wisdom and knowledge. God comes back to him and says, yes, I'm going to give you wisdom and knowledge, and remember, He said, you didn't ask for riches and honor, but I'm going to give you wisdom and knowledge and riches and honor. Most kings would have asked for riches and honor. You ask for wisdom and knowledge, you're going to get that and riches and honor. Solomon easily recognized that God's response was better than what he asked for. It was beyond his request. But when we say that God always either gives us what we ask for or something better. The definition of better is really vital. Better means truly better for our eternal good and God's greater glory. Truly better for our eternal good and God's greater glory. And sometimes God gives us an answer in a different currency than what we ask. Asked for. Think of it this way a little child comes to a parent and says, May I have $5? And the dad gives the child not $5, but an ounce of gold. Okay, now that ounce of gold today is worth about $1,900. Okay, it's far better, but the child might look at it and say, Hey, I don't think I can use this to buy candy at the store. I want that $5 bill. But the gold is really far, far better than the $5 bill. Well, that's how we often are with God's answers, right? That we see what he gives us, and it doesn't look better. But it really is far better. Better. So remember, God often answers in a different currency than what we asked, but it's always better. This was the case with Paul's thorn in the flesh, right? He didn't give it to him in the currency of relief from pain. He gave it to him in the currency of humility and thus becoming more and more Christ-like and manifesting God's strength in his weakness. Paul is explicit about this, that this is the way God always works in Romans 8, 28 to 29. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. In what sense do they work for good? He tells us in the next verse. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That was part of the goodness of God's answer to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. He was conforming Paul to the image of his son. Or as we read earlier from 2 Corinthians 4.17, the light momentary afflictions are working for us an eternal weight of glory that far surpasses them all. That's the currency. That's the most valuable currency. That's the gold, that eternal weight of glory. And that should be our aim. And it was Jesus' aim, remember, when he was faced with the cross, John chapter 12. Jesus, contemplating the cross, knowing that his hour has come, says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Do I request not to have to go through the cross? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. What does he ask? Father, glorify your name. Jesus says, that's what I want. That's what I want. That's the currency in which I want you to answer me. So as Jesus tells us, both in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, and so many other times, God is our loving Father. And if a father's child asks for bread, he's not going to give him stone. If he asks for a fish, he's not going to give him a snake. But if that child asks for candy, he might well give him an apple, something better. So Jesus concludes in Matthew 7, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Better things even than what they ask. So friends, God answered all four requests in Psalm 132 with more than what the people asked for. And he will answer our every prayer with more than we ask for. The fulfillment of these requests that we've seen in Psalm 132 is all in the new Jerusalem. Seeing him face to face if you believe in Jesus, if you acknowledge your sin, acknowledge that there's nothing you can do to reconcile yourself to God, and you trust that that death on the cross was sufficient to pay the penalty for your sins, you are there with him in the new Jerusalem. And now, in this age, in this era of the world, He's working in you and me to make us like Christ, conforming us to the image of Christ. Anyone who's in Jesus, anyone in whom he has begun that good work, he will complete it, often painfully, always for our good. He will dwell in your temple, the temple of your body, in order to make you like him, to give you the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. To build you up as part of his people, his church, to advance his church, to spread it to every tribe and tongue and people and nation, through you, through his entire church. And his answers often don't look like what we ask for, as in my case in 1977, as in Paul's case with the thorn in the flesh. But always, always, he gives us what is best, best for our becoming like Jesus, best for the advance of his church, best for the glory of his name. So may we pray and pray and pray. And may we eagerly, expectantly look toward those surprising ways that God will answer all our prayers for our good and his glory. Let's pray together.